The technology of the electronic medical record may be part of the solution of inefficiencies in our healthcare system, but it is hard to deny its associated problems, especially in developing meaningful doctor-patient relationships. This is ReachMD, the program for medical professionals, and I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard. And today our guest is Dr. Robert Wachter. He's professor of medicine at the University of California in San Francisco and the recent author of the book, The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. Thank you very much, doctor, for joining us. Great pleasure. What prompted you to write this book and for whom did you direct it? What prompted me was a surprise and disappointment. I, uh, I, like many people, had been waiting for computers to enter the world of medicine and transform it and make it better, as computers have done in many other industries. And for me particularly, my work, uh, a lot of my work is in patient safety and medical errors. And so I was quite confident computers would come in and get rid of all kinds of medical errors from those stemming from doctor's handwriting to many others. And computers came in and they made certain things better, but they made certain things worse. And I noticed that doctors weren't looking patients in the eye anymore. They were focusing on their computers. And we were no longer going to the radiology department to talk to the radiologist because we didn't have to. And then one day at UCSF, we gave a kid a 39-fold overdose of a common antibiotic in a completely wired environment. And as I heard about that case, it dawned on me that something fundamental had changed. And although I'm not a Luddite by any means, I think computers are wonderful, but nobody was writing about it, nobody was talking about it, but everyone was disappointed. So I wanted to set out and understand that better, and I was writing it really for everyone who I thought was interested in this, but my main goal was to try to catalyze a national, and now as it's turned out, international conversation about why we're not getting this right and how we can get this right, and to write it in a style that would be accessible and interesting to people. You know, when you mentioned this particular massive overdose, you mentioned there were lots of warnings. There were lots of breakdowns in the system. Are we getting so many warnings that we're really ignoring them rather than one warning that really gets our attention? Like when I was practicing, a nurse would call me on the phone and say, Mrs. So-and-so doesn't look right. She didn't give me the diagnosis, but I usually got out of bed and went to see the patient because that kind of information was maybe more meaningful to me than all the warnings that flash across my screen. Well, I think there are two things there that I think there are real. One is that's a person-to-person interaction, and when someone you trust calls you and says, you got to take a look at this, we all get up out of bed and take that very seriously. When a computer does it, it's a little bit depersonalized, and you don't quite know how important that is. But the second thing is absolutely right. When we put in computers, we said how wonderful it's going to be that the computer can now warn us if the heart rate is too high, the heart rate is too low, these two medicines might interact, this medicine might interact with your grapefruit juice. That all sounds good, and if you're a computer designer and you're told to do that, you say, oh, great idea. The problem is nobody took the point of view of the end user, which is computer speak for the doctor or the nurse or the person who's going to be the recipient of all these alerts and alarms. And it turns out that if you're a human being and you get dozens or hundreds or thousands of alerts and alarms, what do you do? You stop paying attention. And so one of the fundamental problems that I discovered and that played out in that case was that there were all sorts of red flags or pink flags that were going off, but they go off all the time. One of the things I discovered was that in our intensive care units at UCSF, so we have about 70 ICU beds 
in the course of one month, the monitors that alarm or alert if something is wrong or might be wrong, those monitors send off an alert 2.5 million times in a month. And there's an audible alarm that goes off by a patient's bedside once every six or seven minutes. And so in talking to a nurse at the bedside, she was asked, what would make you really worried? Because the alarms are gone off all the time. And the nurse thought for a second and then said, silence. If there are no alarms, then I'm worried that something is wrong. You know, Think about how backwards that is. But that is the electronic environment we've created. And we have to be much more thoughtful about how humans actually interact with these systems. Following up on that question, in a large teaching healthcare system, you mentioned there can be as many as 10 million transactions daily, more than NASDAQ. This certainly doesn't lead and may actually complicate care. Well, and it does, but that's not an argument against computerization. Those transactions are going to happen whether they're on paper or they're on computers. And in some ways, the numbers and the volume of the data flow are a profound argument for computerization. The idea that we can have those sorts of transactions and that the unit of transaction is the piece of paper or the fax machine or the three-ring binder or the post-it note is ridiculous. It can't possibly work. It can't work that the chart is a three-ring binder that lives in one place and only one person can be looking at it at a time. So whether it's paper or computer, we are going to have that kind of complexity. We have to figure out a way of digitizing healthcare, using, making sure those transactions can happen efficiently and digitally, but doing it in a way that respects how clinical care works and respects how the human brain works and takes into account the fact that this is still a relationship-based business and we have to look patients in the eye, we have to talk to one another, and if we all have our heads down entering data and spending three quarters of our day as fairly expensive and not particularly good data entry clerks, we have not gotten it right. And I think that's part of why I wanted to write the book, because that was my feeling is that's about the stage we're at. I get the feeling, looking at progress notes, that they've kind of lost their function and now have been developed really as a format for billing and payment purposes rather than to follow the course and problems of your patients. How do you feel about that? Uh, terribly, and, and I think that's right. And uh, people sometimes blame the, the vendors on that. You know, why did you make us do that? And I, having spent a fair amount of time with some of the big uh, software makers, including Epic, which is the biggest, I came away with some sympathy because they were told you need to build an electronic progress note that not only serves the clinical function of recording the patient's story, but also improves our billing and prevents malpractice suits and makes sure we look like we're providing good quality. And in the end, we created this Christmas tree on which we were hanging so many ornaments that the thing couldn't stand up. I do think that we have to get back to the real function of a doctor's or nurse's note, which is to tell a story. And some of that is going to be in rethinking the way the software vendors do their work. Some of that, frankly, is ours to do. Some of that is how we train people. I tell my students and residents at UCSF, just because the computer will allow you to create a 20 or 30 page note that's filled with electronic gibberish, doesn't mean you must do that. And in the old days, we taught people how to write a good note that told a story. I think we have to teach people how to write a good note in the electronic era. And the software has to facilitate that, which that does not happen today. You know, you've touched on a word dear to my heart, storytelling. People like StoryCorp are on the air regularly, realizing that the richness of people's lives are often in their story. And when I think back about the patients that impressed me, I don't remember their lab tests or their particular physical findings. I often remember the story that 
told me about their values that led to their particular decision. And we now see some articles appearing in medical journals talking about trying to get medical students to tell their stories. But is really this electronic medical record a good vehicle for the kind of stories that express people's values? I think it can be. I, you know, I don't think there's anything really about electronics and digitization that make it impossible for good stories to come out. And I'm not talking about good stories as a form of entertainment. I think there's something fundamentally important, as I believe you do, about the patient's story as a core element of who they are and understanding their health and their health values. But if you think about the richness of storytelling on the web and some of the blog sites and the way Wikipedia works, that we now have figured out a way to have a note that's a collaboration of multiple people, or if you go onto someone's Facebook homepage or onto Twitter and you see stories, but stories that are being told in novel ways using video and audio and all sorts of things, there's nothing to me about the electronics that says we can't use this vehicle to create better stories. The problem is what we did, and, and this is quite typical in digitization of complex enterprises, is we said, okay, we have the paper version. We're just going to create a digital version of the paper version without rethinking what we're trying to do. And when you do that, you almost always get it wrong. And so when I look at a note now, why is the note now 30 pages of gobbledygook? Because in the digital world, it's not that hard to put in a whole bunch of check boxes and have a little button where you can import all the laboratory studies and all the x-rays. You would never do that on paper because you'd have to be writing them over and over again. So we created these mechanisms without thinking, what are human beings going to do? I believe if we rethink what the physician's note is about, or many other things that we do in healthcare, and say, let's design it for a digital world, but let's design it for the purpose, I actually think we can get it better. You know, when we talk about digitization getting in the way of communication, certainly sometimes it does when I see my kids with their heads down, not talking to anybody because they're online. Yeah, it's getting in the way of communication. But I also know that I FaceTime with my parents in Florida, and it improves our communication. So I think we can get this right. I just think we didn't, and in part because we didn't think carefully about what are we trying to do here and how do we ensure that the digitization serves those core purposes. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and today our guest is Dr. Robert Wachter. Dr. Wachter has written the very provocative and thought-provoking book, The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. We've spent $30 billion. Is there any evidence that this particular amount of money has improved quality? Well, let me correct you there. We've spent a hell of a lot more than $30 billion. The federal government invested $30 billion, but in most cases, it was only a tiny fraction of the amount of money that, for example, a hospital like mine spent. We're north of half a billion dollars that we've spent on our computerization, and what we got from the federal government was probably $20 million, which would sort of catalyze it and create it a tipping point. So an enormous amount of money has been spent on this. The evidence so far is that it has improved quality, safety, and moving data around in ways that are less powerful, less positive than we had hoped, but there is a positive signal there. The evidence that it saved money is not there. And when you look at, is the investment worth it in terms of the dollars that have been spent around the country on healthcare computerization versus the dollar saved, the answer is not yet. And I think the yet is important. Because one of the things I learned in researching my book is of the concept of the productivity paradox. And that concept says that in every industry that digitized, there were high hopes 
that computers would come in and make manufacturing better and cheaper or financial services or banking. And the computers came in, and a few years later, people were scratching their heads because they had not seen these long-promised efficiency advantages. And then somewhere around year 10, people started to see them. And when they saw them, then they galloped, and things really got better very quickly in a major way. And the clues are the answer for the productivity barriers. Why does it take 10 years? It takes 10 years partly because the systems have to get better, but partly because of what we were speaking about earlier. People have to rethink the work. In the beginning, nobody does that. People put in the computers and keep doing the work the old way the same people, the same job descriptions, and it doesn't really achieve the advantages that you hoped. By about year 10, people begin to come in and ask, why are we doing it this way? Why does the note look this way? Why do we communicate with one another this way? And they begin to reimagine the work for a digital environment, and that's when you see the major improvements. So my own feeling is when you look at widespread computerization of American healthcare, we're about three to five years into it. And I think we're beginning to see the early pieces of that kind of reimagining. I think we are going to see major efficiency advantages. And whether it's five or 10 or 15 years away, I think it depends on how quickly we get on with it and begin innovating and rethinking the work and rethinking the staffing. I think we will get there, but it's going to take a little while longer. You know, when you, there was an interesting article in the New England Journal talking about this transitional chaos. Could this have been avoided if we went to the user you use an example of Boeing aircraft and what they did. They went to the pilots, the people who were going to use it before it was rolled out. Could some of this confusion, chaos, possible harm have been avoided if doctors had been more involved in the manufacturing and structure of these systems? I think they'd be better than they are. I think that, as you saw in the book, I did spend some time with Boeing as well as healthcare. IT vendors and Boeing, this principle of user-centered design, this principle that we're smart engineers, we'll do the best we can, but before we roll that plane out and fly it, we're going to make sure that we've watched the pilots use our systems for thousands of hours, and every time we do, we're surprised, and we then make it better. That kind of thinking and sensibility is not highly prevalent in the healthcare software industry, and I think it has to be. I think we would have gotten it righter if we had done that. Could we have sidestepped all the problems? I think the answer is no. And I hearken back to a, uh, a quote from Henry Ford at the uh, advent of the automobile, where Ford said, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. In other words, they had really no ability to understand their world with cars until there were cars. And then people said, huh, okay, now we need highways, and now we need uh, gas stations by the highway, all these sort of things. If you'd asked doctors, all right, what do you need? What does your digital environment need to look like while they were still on paper? I don't know it would have been all of that much help. Or if you brought them into Epic headquarters in Wisconsin and said, all right, let's see how you feel about this screen. I also don't think that would have been much help. What you need to do is you put in the computers and then you kind of look over their shoulder and say, huh, that's funny. I didn't expect you were going to do that or it was going to change your behavior in this way. We need a different computerized environment. I think that's where we are now. I think we could have gotten there faster and avoided some of the early bumps. But I have to say, in studying a lot of other industries, some of these early bumps are just the way this goes. Are these systems ever going to talk to each other? Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they are talking to each other. They're talking to each other a little bit, but nowhere near enough. It's no longer a technical problem of getting them to talk to each other. The technical issues are not that hard. It's mostly a political and economic issue, which is 
that none of the players, whether it's the software vendors or the hospitals or the doctors, have a tremendous economic incentive to do the hard work and invest the money to get them to talk to each other. That doesn't mean that these are nasty people that don't want them to talk to each other at some level or are actively blocking it. But it does mean that there's some work involved in, in weaving these things together. This is a classic case where you need the federal government to be involved and push everybody to say, let's come up with a common set of standards and get these things to talk to each other. You know, it's doable. Think about banking where I put my B of A card into a Citibank machine and it spits out money. It's doable. I think we're about five years away before it's widespread. It's happening much more than it once did in part because some of the vendors are winning the game. And so Epic in particular in my region, most of the big hospitals have Epic. That's the system they've chosen to buy. And it turns out to not be all that hard to share data between Epic systems. So a patient of ours comes into UCSF and they've recently been at Stanford or at California Pacific, which have Epic, we can actually get their records pretty easily. It's going to take a little while longer before we can get their records from a Cerner system or an Athena system, but I think we'll get there. Before we leave, certainly when I talk to my patients and even people who are in the community and not my patients, the biggest complaint is my doctor no longer touches me. He no longer looks at me. How can we make this technology allow doctors to still see body language and changes in facial expressions when somebody is answering our questions? Part of the problem is the technology doesn't help us now and actually hurts. It takes too long. The systems are too clunky. And so we're having to spend an inordinate amount of time feeding the computer rather than paying attention to the patient. There are fixes to that, but they're kind of funny fixes. The most prevalent one are scribes, where a lot of primary care practices, ERs and others, have hired mostly young people to come in and be a third person in the room to feed the computer. And the levels of satisfaction among both the doctors and the patients is, are quite high when you use scribes. It's a very funny solution, as I've told many people. Every other industry computerizes and immediately starts laying people off. Only in healthcare could we figure out a way of computerizing and having to add people. But you can imagine a world not that far away where the natural language processing reads your note Voice recognition gets better, so the conversation is essentially taped and then becomes your note. Medicare and other payers say, you know, we're not going to bill the same way we build where you have to click nine review systems boxes. You can envision a world where some of the documentation burden goes down. And, you know, when we reach that world, I actually think the ability of doctors and patients to look each other in the eye and pay more attention to their stories will actually go up but we have not reached that stage yet. And part of the reason I wanted to write this was I wanted to try to move things along. And it feels like this is now a real national conversation, that we've gotten something fundamentally wrong here. And the conversation can't be, let's get rid of the computers. It's just not possible, and it's not the right call. The right call is let's think much more maturely about how we get this right. And I think we're going to get there. You know, I ended up my book on a much more optimistic note than I thought I had when I started because I could see what the path to getting there will be, but it's going to require a different kind of thinking than we've put into this so far. Yeah, when I finished your book in closing, I was left with the feeling that someday we'll be able to coax these machines to do all the things we want them to do and none of the things we don't. But we're still going to be left with a patient seeking help at a time of great need and overwhelming anxiety, and we have to always be worthy of these patients and their full attention. I want to thank you very much for joining us today, and I encourage our audience to look at your book, read your book, very popular, filled with lots of information, and that somebody out there is really listening to us when I struggle to leave an order 
in an electronic medical record. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. This is Dr. Maurice Pickard, and in closing, if you've missed any of our discussion, please visit ReachMD.com to download this podcast and many others in this series.